As we continue our series on the divine name, in this episode we'll address more objections, including the teaching of Nehemia Gordon, who has an increasingly influential voice on this topic. We'll talk about whether he is a trustworthy scholar, whether pronouncing God's name makes us run the risk of taking his name in vain, and more. I'm Andrew Case, and you're listening to the Working for the Word podcast. Thanks for joining me again for more on this journey. Now, to be honest, I was actually avoiding addressing this whole issue of Nehemia Gordon because some of his claims about the divine name are so ludicrous that as a scholar, you're tempted to just dismiss them entirely and not really explain to anyone why they're not true. And the problem with this is that he is, as I said in the introduction, increasingly influential on this topic of the divine name. He's written a book that I've read called The Conspiracy of Silence. He's a Karaite Jew. He does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's very interested in the New Testament, especially the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew and other things. He's also a YouTube sensation in some sense. He has over 20,000 subscribers. His podcast has been listened to millions of times. And he regularly appears on different kinds of talk shows and does presentations. So basically, his soapbox, number one soapbox, is that he has discovered, he has uncovered this conspiracy that has been keeping us from knowing God's real name and calling upon God's name in the correct way for centuries. And he claims that the proper way, the correct way that he has amazingly, almost miraculously discovered is Yehovah. Now, part of the reason he has been so influential, and not just in English, but in other languages, this has been spread all over Latin America. People get very excited about this because he is so excited about it. So, he is a very contagious, extremely exciting personality, a very persuasive way of speaking, He does know Hebrew. He speaks modern Hebrew. He has studied ancient Hebrew. He has studied ancient Greek. He knows enough to do what I call exegetical sleight of hand. So basically, this is magic with biblical content. Okay, so let me explain. One of the reasons I love magic, so I've been doing magic since I was a kid, off and on, and, uh, you know, amateur stuff. But I, I love magic because. It creates an illusion of something that's impossible. You you know it's impossible, but yet it looks totally possible. Okay, so in in illusion magic or magic tricks, the audience knows what you're doing isn't real. They feel like it's real. So that whole tension between the real and the unreal and not knowing how the, the person did it is what is so delightful about magical illusion. Now, when somebody does this with the Bible or with biblical teaching, the problem is that people are listening to them 
as somebody speaking the truth, and they are usually claiming to speak the truth. And so when they do sleight of hand, or they use things or throw around terms that the people don't understand, their audience usually doesn't have access to that knowledge, then it's very easy to deceive people into believing something that's very cool and exciting and looks amazing. It's just eye candy for those people. Now, every magician knows that his illusion hangs on certain things that are completely hidden from the audience. You know, maybe you have a double, maybe you have some kind of mechanism that creates the illusion, things like that that people totally don't expect. Well, the same can be said of Hebrew and Greek for the person who's talking about biblical issues. They have some insider knowledge that isn't available to the common person listening. And so the temptation is to take that and just kind of wave your hand, and then the people will be wowed by your knowledge, but they won't be able to check behind the scenes and see what's actually going on. Now, I have no idea what Nehemiah Gordon's motivation would be to deceive people intentionally or to lie. I'm not even here to accuse him of deceit, intentional deceit. Maybe he is just completely confused himself or hasn't actually weighed the evidence carefully himself, or maybe he's just not a good thinker. But one thing is, he's very confident. He's very passionate, absolutely zealous about what he presents, and he goes all in. So, if you combine that passion with this knowledge of Hebrew or supposed knowledge of Hebrew, you can wow a lot of people and gain a lot of followers. Now, this leads me to another kind of soapbox of my own, which is, this is why we all need to learn Hebrew and Greek. (laughs) This should be the new normal for Christian discipleship, because we're all just sitting on our butts, lazy, too lazy to actually learn. So, we say, okay, you person on YouTube, you learn it and tell me amazing, cool things that will wow me like the illusionist. I don't want to spend the time doing that hard work myself, so you do that for me. Thank you very much and give me cool insights, and then I can turn around and wow my friends with those insights. But basically what I'm talking about and what you've heard me say before is we need to level the playing field in the body of Christ and stop always thinking that Hebrew and Greek are for the professional, elite, high-tower theologians, all of that kind of stuff. We've just got to shift our minds, shift our paradigm, and so we're working hard at Aleph with Beth, my wife and I, to make this something that even kids can learn. You know, it's totally possible. We teach our kids, you know, a lot of people teach their kids Spanish and Latin and whatever else, but why aren't we teaching them the biblical languages? Now, of course, there's lots of reasons for that that I've written about on our website, freehebrew.online. If you go to Why Hebrew, you can learn more about that. But that's not what this episode of this podcast is about. So let's get back to Nehemiah Gordon. So he's this magician with Hebrew. He wows people with his enthusiasm and with his knowledge of Hebrew. Whether it's good knowledge or not, few people can actually call him out on that. Now, at this point, we run into a problem because serious scholars don't take him seriously, so they don't see him as a serious threat to theology and just thinking about the divine name, so they ignore him. Well, meanwhile, he's getting millions of 
views on YouTube and millions of people are being wooed by his passion and by his arguments and his supposed knowledge of Hebrew. So no one's addressing what he's saying. You know, nobody in the Gospel Coalition is standing up to say, hey, this is why this is not helpful that he's teaching. And so it just gets more traction. Now, there are some people who have taken the challenge of rooting through all of the misinformation that he has broadcast all over the world. And these people have recently started a channel called Hebrew Gospels on YouTube, where they're systematically walking through the claims that Nehemiah Gordon makes about the divine name because they're concerned about how much traction it's getting. The problem is that no one's watching these videos. They're very, very obscure. But then it gets messy because the people who are on this channel addressing the errors of Nehemiah Gordon are not mainstream, what we would call mainstream evangelical scholars. They actually seem to come from the Hebrew roots movement, which can tend to have its own sorts of extremes. So what I'm about to present to you is some stuff that I've gotten from their channel. I want to also encourage you to watch some of their videos with discernment, and I'll put links in the description, Uh, just knowing that I'm not endorsing everything that they stand for. You know, they have a website and all of this stuff. I don't know them. I have actually reached out to them. I haven't gotten a reply. I wanted to get to know them a little bit more on a personal level. So although I recommend their teaching, it's really good teaching on correcting Gordon's errors, I don't want to be necessarily associated with everything they stand for. You know what I'm saying? So since Nehemia Gordon is on YouTube, we can listen to, in his own voice and in his own words, the stuff that he claims. Just a snippet or two of it. Before that, I'm going to also play some people talking about how much they trust him. And I think this is true for a lot of people who are buying into what he has to say. So let's play the clips. And Nehemiah Gordon. And Nehemiah has done that. He, yes. he is, you, you put him on the scent of something and he, he, he never gives up. Right. He will, he will burn the house down looking for the truth. And that's what I love about him. He's, he's the most honest scholar uh, that, that I, I know, that I've ever met in Israel, a very honest scholar, and that's why I, I, I trust him. I agree. I, he's he's I earned that trust. He, he has. He's a real searcher for truth. If you were that kind of person, I wouldn't have come to you. But I knew that you were honest, right. a very honest scholar. Um, but but when you look at it both from the Jewish culture and the language that Yeshua spoke in, which was the Hebrew language in that context, you get all these insights. Um, and one of the places which is really cool, and we were talking about this before, is in John 17. And can, can we get to John 17? Um, uh, or, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I, I think so. Yeah. That, that if Jesus wanted Christians or people who follow him to know that name, he would have taught them that name and made it known. <laughs> now, can we get the John 17? Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and, yo, uh, really. The, hmm. and, and that's what it says in the Greek, I have made your name known. John 17, 26, he ends the speech. 
I made your name known to them. And, and we call that in, um, in textual studies an inclusio. He opens the speech with the phrase, I made your name known, and he ends it with the same phrase. It's, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a rhetorical device throughout the Hebrew language where I want to emphasize a point. I start with something and I end with it. And what's interesting here, now this is something that would be completely lost in the English. And I'll be honest, Michael, I didn't notice this until I was speaking with um, a Messianic pastor and he said, Nehemiah, you know, we were spending some time together studying. And he said, would you look at the Hebrew uh, translation of John 17 for me? And I'm like, why would I look at a Hebrew translation of John 17? I know that's not the original. The yeah, I, yeah. And I know it's from the Greek. It's yeah. by a man named Franz Dalich, a great Bible scholar of he ancient Hebrew, who translated John 17 into the Hebrew in, in, from Greek. I said, well, why would I bother looking at that? He said, just do me a favor. So I start looking at it. And I'm blown away, completely unexpected. I found something he didn't, I mean, he had no idea what I would find, right? Mm -hmm. So, but he, he had a hunch and I give him credit. He had that hunch and I look at it and what I find is, you know, I've talked in the past about Hebrew word puns and a Hebrew word pun is where they take a certain Hebrew word and they use it repeatedly throughout the passage. And sometimes they'll use two similar sounding words repeatedly after the pass, throughout the passage. They'll just punch it. They'll use that word over and over and over. So we have this beautiful thing here in, um, in John 17. Can we go back to John 17? Well, or? Uh, please do. Okay. Please do. So, and I only saw this when I looked in Franz Dalich's Hebrew translation. So this is the beautiful thing he did. He translated it from Greek into Hebrew and things appeared that you couldn't see in the Greek or the English. So one of the things that showed up is he's talking about your name and he says, and he has the phrase your name three times, your name, your name, your name. Remember, shalem, 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 just like in the, in the parable. Mm -hmm. Three times your name. He opens with your name. He closes with your name. I've made your name known. And then throughout, he keeps talking about what you have given me. And he keeps saying this, you have given me, you have given me, you gave me um, uh, to those whom you gave me, you gave. I mean, it's repeated in Second Temple Hebrew and in a little bit in First Temple Hebrew, we have another word for gave, which is Yahav, Yahavah. So he's talking three times about the name, which is Yehovah, and he keeps using this verb over and over, Yahavah, 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 which sounds like the name Yehovah. Mm -hmm. And he, I mean, he uses this verb 16 times in 26 verses. This is not a coincidence. Right, you, right, even, right. Even when you read it in English, you're like, why does he keep repeating himself? Because that's the Hebrew style. Mm -hmm. You want to, you know, punch that, that key word that has the sound, has the sound of the point you're trying to get to, which is making the name known. So he says, I've made your name known. Those whom you gave me, you gave me, you gave me, I gave, you gave. And that's Yahavah, Yahavah, Yahavta, Yahavti, Yahavtani. It's, it's the, it sounds like the name Yehovah. Well, if that was all, you know, let's be impressive, but maybe it's a coincidence. Five times he talks about love, which is Ahava. So you have Yehovah, the name, Yehovah to give, and Ahava to love. That's three words that sound very similar in the Hebrew language. There's no way that he gives this speech and that's not just jumping jumping off, not jumping off the page, jumping off his lips to their ears that he's punching this concept of those who you've given me love and the name of the Father, Yehovah. Hebrew word puns. This is a central theme throughout this passage of John 17. And the bottom line is what ties all of this together is that Yeshua says, I made your name known. So he's telling his disciples, if you take this at face value, the name of my Father is Yehovah. 
That's the face value of what it says if you take it seriously. So he's telling his disciples, if you take this at face value, the name of my father is Yehovah. That's the face value of what it says if you take it seriously. So did you catch the enthusiasm and confidence in his voice? If you saw the video, then you would see even more in his face. I mean, he's just absolutely giddy about what he's sharing, this nugget of amazing insight that he has to share. Now, to the average listener, this may sound dazzlingly clever and impressive. To the average scholar, this may sound like there are so many layers of insanity going on that we don't even know where to start. So where do we start? First of all, who is Franz de Lich? So this is a guy who translated, like he said, translated the New Testament into Hebrew. He was born in 1813. He was a German Lutheran theologian and Hebraist, and he wrote a lot of other things. Anyway, he published his New Testament in Hebrew in 1877, and it's still considered the standard New Testament edition in Hebrew. So it's on its 10th edition. So if you look at the 1877 edition, if you look at later editions in the early 1900s, if you go all the way up to the 2002 edition, you will quickly see in John 17 that not once, not even once, do we find the verb yahav, as Gordon claims. Not once. It's always using the word natan, which most people who know Hebrew will know. It's one of the first verbs you learn, the verb to give. And so that's what's going on in that New Testament. So clearly in the clip, Gordon is saying that it was in that version of the New Testament where he first was illuminated and he saw this amazing thing. So basically that was complete lie number one. Number two So let's give him the benefit of the doubt, and let's imagine that maybe what he meant to say was, I saw this verb, Natan, to give over and over in John 17. And that made me think, well, maybe, just maybe, Jesus was using Yahav instead of Natan, even though it's not there in that version of the New Testament. Let's go with that. Okay. So let's look up Yahav. First of all, Yahav it doesn't even have the, the letter vav in it. Uh, it happens to make the V sound because of the bet in the root. But that root in first and second temple Hebrew is never once used. We have no evidence of it ever being used as a perfect. It is only ever used as an imperative. We never find it in any other form. It's always used as an imperative. So it's exclusively, as far as all the evidence goes, exclusively used in that way. And the imperative form sounds nothing like Yahav, the root form, or Yehovah, or anything like that. It sounds totally different as an imperative. It actually starts with an H. So that's complete gibberish what he's suggesting there. Now, this is just scratching the surface of all the problems in what he said. And it's just incredible how much time you would have to take to unpack carefully and methodically every problem. 
we're not even getting into the amount of speculation required to go where he's going. Now, lest this podcast end up being two or three hours long, what I'm going to do is just link in the description to a video that spends more than an hour just on this issue, trying to unpack that whole clip and pinpoint all of the errors. So this has already been done and it's been done well. It's done in a very balanced way, I would say. Not in a mean way or anything, just in a very balanced, we want to really examine these things for ourselves kind of way. Now, another thing Nehemia is extremely famous for, and probably mainly famous for, is for denying, completely denying hundreds of years of evidence by scholars presented that the divine name, when it was written by the Masoretes, was pointed with the vowels of Adonai, Lord. He denies that and he tries very hard to find little tricks to get people to believe him. Once again, I don't have time to go into every little trick that he's come up with, analyze it, and show you why it's wrong, because those people over at Hebrew Gospels have already done that, so I'm going to link in the description to another video about that. But suffice it to say, it's just ludicrous to make that claim. And a lot of this stuff tends to bleed over or cross-pollinate with the sacred name movement mess that we already talked about in a past episode. So let's leave Nehemiah Gordon now, and let's continue on with further objections to pronouncing or translating the divine name. Another objection that's brought to the table by Dr. Mark Futado is basically that the pronunciation of Yahweh is historically artificial. So he did a special edition video from the Daily Dose of Hebrew on why he does not believe that Yahweh is a correct reconstruction of the pronunciation. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this because it would basically be rehashing a lot of what was already talked about in the interview with Dr. Austin Searles in the previous episode. So go check that out if you're curious. But I agree. I totally agree. We don't know. And I've already addressed this in another objection section. We don't know. And it probably is historically inaccurate. You know, it could have been something like Yahawaha, could have been something like Yahoo. There's many different possibilities. And Futado bases his claims on some things that have been said in the theological word book of the Old Testament. So basically, at the end of the day, Futado and the theological word book are arguing that Yahweh would have originally had four syllables instead of two, most likely. Now, his conclusion is that he never uses Yahweh or, or says anything but Adonai in the classroom and when he's teaching or reading. So, he says, Yahweh should not be pronounced, and no approximation of it should be used in translation. So, my question to him and others who claim the same thing is, if you know a better way of pronouncing it based on historical morphology, why don't you use it? If you think it would be more likely Yahawaha, 
then why don't you just use that? What's the big deal? So it seems to boil down to this. Futado thinks that Yahweh is wrong, but he also realizes that any other suggestion would be speculation just as much as Yahweh, almost. Maybe a little bit closer to the mark. And he understands, as everyone else does, that we don't know the exact pronunciation of a word at the time of Moses because there were no recording devices. Thus, his conclusion is that we should not even try to pronounce it or render it in translation. So, as I've already argued, it doesn't matter if Yahweh turns out to be slightly or drastically different from the original pronunciation at Sinai. What matters is how are we seeking to understand, obey, and honor God's explicit desire in Exodus 3.15? We have to face that, regardless of how we end up pronouncing his name, just like the name of Jesus. I gave that example in a past episode. Another objection I want to address today is that we run the risk of taking God's name in vain. This is one of the most common objections throughout history, and unfortunately, the name command, as we saw in an interview with Dr. Carmen Joy Imes about Exodus 20, verse 7, the name command, it's been misunderstood for centuries. So here is one version in English, how it renders this verse. You shall not take, and in Hebrew that's lo tisa, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Lashav is in vain in Hebrew. At least that's how that, tra- that translation renders it. For the Lord will not hold guiltless one who takes his name in vain. So even though we've heard from Carmen Joy Imes herself in person, let me read to you some things that she's written about the name command. She's arguing that the idea really has to do with misrepresenting God's character. She says, the name command says nothing about oaths or cursing. In fact, there are no speech-related words at all. Translated simply, it says, you shall not bear the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Perhaps this is why I've been able to count 23 distinctly different interpretations of the name command. It seems like an odd statement. How does one bear God's name? It's no wonder that interpreters have often gone to other passages, either outside or inside of the Bible, hoping for clarification. Most assume that bear the name is shorthand for something like bear the name on your lips, which would be to say the name, or lift your hand to the name, which would mean to swear an oath. But there's a much simpler explanation. We miss it because it involves a metaphor that's unfamiliar to us. Shortly after the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai, God gave instructions to Moses regarding the construction of the tabernacle, which will house the two stone tablets and the official vestments of the high priest who will officiate. The article of clothing that is of central importance to Aaron's position as high priest is a cloth chest apron studded with twelve precious stones. These stones are to be inscribed. 
each with the name of one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Yahweh instructs Aaron to bear the names of the sons of Israel wherever he enters the sacred tent. Exodus 28:12. Aaron literally bears their names. He carries them on his person as he goes about his official duties. He serves as the people's authorized representative before God. He also bears Yahweh's name on his forehead setting him apart as God's representative to the people. As special as he is, Aaron is a visual model of what the entire covenant community is called to be and do. At Sinai, Yahweh selected Israel as his treasured possession, kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Exodus 19. All three titles designate Israel as Yahweh's official representative set apart to mediate his blessing to all nations. By selecting the Israelites, Yahweh has claimed them as his own, in effect, branding them with his name as a claim of ownership. Because they bear his name, they are charged to represent him well. That is, they must not bear that name in vain. This goes far beyond oaths or pronunciation of God's name. It extends to their behavior in every area of life. In everything, they must represent him. They are his public relations department. The nations are watching the Israelites to find out what Yahweh is like. Not convinced yet? Look at Aaron's blessing in Numbers 6.24-27. through After Aaron's ordination as high priest, where he was clothed with the special garments and the consecration of the tabernacle and people, his first official act was to pronounce this blessing over the people. So, see Leviticus 9.22 here. So, it's very likely that you've heard the blessing before. It's often used in churches and synagogues. May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh smile on you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh show his favor and give you peace. But have you ever read the following verse? So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. You see, it's quite explicit. God put his name on the Israelites as a claim of ownership. They wore an invisible tattoo they were not to bear it in vain, end quote. So that's from Carmen Joy Imes. Now the name command is further elucidated by passages like Isaiah 44, 5, which reads, this one will say, I am Yahweh's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, Yahweh's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Deuteronomy 28, 9 through 10, also serves to connect belonging to Yahweh and bearing his name. It says, Yahweh will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and walk in his ways, and all the peoples of the earth shall see, listen to this, all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of Yahweh. 
In other words, you bear Yahweh's name, and they shall be afraid of you. So my conclusion here is that in spite of the opinions of many throughout history, the name command of Exodus 20 verse 7 does not imply in any way that the name of God should never be pronounced as he revealed it. Rather, it requires that those who claim to be associated with the one true God, Yahweh, must not bring reproach on his reputation and character through their actions and words. So that's my answer to that objection. I hope that's helpful. Another objection is that this will overwhelm readers. It will create obstacles and it may be inconsistent if we render Yahweh in a translation of the Old Testament. Now, where did those ideas come from? Well, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, recently retracted its practice of rendering the divine name as Yahweh in its earlier English translation, the HCSB. So, here's their explanation in full from their website explaining why they made this decision. Now, before I read it, let me just remind you that we've shown that the inspired writers of the New Testament had valid reasons to use Lord. Although we don't know exactly what they were thinking, I believe that we can guess within reason as to their motives, okay? Now, in light of those motives and in light of Exodus 3.15, let's examine the objections of the Christian Standard Bible publishers, okay? Here's what they say. In the Old Testament, God gives his personal name more than 6,000 times. Known as the Tetragrammaton, the name is YHWH in the Hebrew text. It cannot be pronounced unless vowels are added. Traditionally, English Bible translations have chosen not to supply vowels in order to make YHWH pronounceable. They simply render this name as a title, Lord. This practice shows sensitivity to some who believe that to call God by his personal name is too informal. There is also debate as to which vowels should be added to YHWH to make it pronounceable. The HCSB broke with tradition and rendered this as Yahweh 656 times in the Old Testament. The intent was to share with the reader God's personal name in contexts where God was referring to his name. Four considerations led the CSB Translation Oversight Committee to depart from the HCSB practice and come into alignment with other English translations. First, the HCSB was inconsistent by rendering Yahweh only in 656 of 6,000 plus occurrences of YHWH. In many cases, a single verse contains multiple occurrences of YHWH in the Hebrew. As an example of inconsistency, the HCSB in Job 121 read, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh. Verses like this raised the question, 
What criteria did HCSB follow in choosing between Yahweh and Lord? Criteria were stated in the HCSB introduction, but many readers felt that the approach should be fully consistent, rendering YHWH as Yahweh every time, or else returning to the traditional Lord. Second, full consistency in rendering YHWH as Yahweh would overwhelm the reader. As an example, Numbers 9.23 would read as follows if HCSB had been fully consistent in its use of Yahweh. They camped at Yahweh's command, and they set out at Yahweh's command. They carried out Yahweh's requirement according to Yahweh's command through Moses. Third, consistent feedback from readers showed that the unfamiliarity of Yahweh was an obstacle to reading the HCSB. For example, many reported that they felt Yahweh was an innovation and they misunderstood the intent behind using the formal name of God. A translation that values accuracy and readability was thereby limited by a translation choice that did not provide clarity to the reader. Fourth, when quoting Old Testament texts that include an occurrence of YHWH, the New Testament renders YHWH with the word kurios, which is a title, Lord, rather than a personal name. With this precedent in hand, most English translators have chosen to render YHWH as Lord rather than Yahweh. For these reasons, CSB is in line with the majority of English translations in its rendering of YHWH as Lord. In places where God introduces or emphasizes his covenant name, CSB has a footnote saying, Lit Yahweh. End quote. Now, these four reasons should be responded to in turn. So let's think about them. First, the CSB Oversight Committee admitted that they failed to be consistent in the rendering of Yahweh. However, they conclude that their failure to be consistent is a reason to stop trying altogether. I find this reason to be self-defeating and less than compelling, and I don't think I need to say much more about it. Second, they believe that fully consistent rendering of Yahweh would overwhelm the reader. Yet they fail to explain how it is that repeating the Lord over and over does not overwhelm the reader. Both options actually have two syllables. The Lord, Yahweh. One, two, one, two. How exactly does that overwhelm anybody? I'm I'm not sure. Third, They received negative feedback from readers who said that the use of Yahweh made it an obstacle to reading the HCSB. This sensitivity seems to be in keeping with what may have been involved in the New Testament writer's decision to use kurios. But it would be more helpful if the committee addressed why they think the New Testament authors would do the same in their position. So that's an important caveat. Would the New Testament authors do the same in their position? It's a new era. It's 2,000 years later. Different country. 
different language, different history that they're coming out of. For instance, number one, the New Testament authors were not a publishing company trying to sell Bibles. So money was not a possible motivation for removing obstacles for readers. Number two, the New Testament authors were not publishing a new version of the Hebrew Bible for a people who already had many different options to choose from at their Christian bookstore. If these differences are acknowledged and addressed by the CSB committee, it will help their reasoning to be more transparent and useful. So that's my encouragement to them as a committee. They can't just throw out, well, we got negative feedback, and then say, well, that was enough for us to stop doing this. You got to sift through, okay, what are the biblical reasons for us changing this whole thing based on some negative feedback from readers, right? Because there's going to be negative feedback no matter what you do. Somebody's going to complain. There are many areas in a project where a translation team must compromise for any number of reasons. There are thousands of trivial examples we could mention, from text-critical issues to grammatical issues, but most of them don't approach the gravity of the use of God's distinct personal name, since it's a matter explicitly important to God himself. So, it's another thing they need to address in their reasoning. Now, the fourth and final reason of the CSB Oversight Committee is the most relevant. They recognize the New Testament's use of kurios in Greek, the title Lord in place of the divine name, as a standard they wish to follow or imitate. Now, I would say that this objection is acceptable, but only in light of what we've already discussed in this podcast series about the New Testament author's desire to communicate clearly and identify Jesus with Yahweh. However, the oversight committee needs to provide their own criteria for following the example of the New Testament. First, they should show what they believe were the reasons for the New Testament's use of the Lord. They got to show what they believe were the reasons there. They've got to talk about those reasons that they think were in the minds of the New Testament authors for doing this. Second, they should demonstrate a compelling rationale for following those New Testament reasons in today's context. Okay? So, they need to show that. I'm not saying that there isn't a good compelling rationale for doing that, but they need to develop that. They need to work that out and make it explicit. Third, they should be required to argue why the apostles would do the same in their place if they were given the chance to publish a translation of the Old Testament. Okay, that's that's very important here. If they were given, if the apostles were given the chance to publish a translation of the Old Testament in a language other than Greek, with access to mass media and the convenience of being able to communicate their reasons in a preface, study notes, footnotes, etc. Okay, so for example, they must answer the question, if Paul were alive today, In a world where Yahweh is a name used widely in the academic world and understood by many to be God's personal name, and he were publishing a Bible translation primarily for Gentiles to read, 
would he still decide to publish a version of the Old Testament using the Lord? The answer in their minds may very well be a resounding yes, and that's fine. But they still need to articulate their logic cogently and carefully demonstrate that they have considered the issue from every angle. Fourth, they must address Exodus 3.15. I mean, come on. They've got to address that. Why, why aren't they even talking about Exodus 3.15? And deal adequately and responsibly with the tensions created by that passage. I am not saying that it's an easy thing to answer at all, but you've got to bring it up. You've got to acknowledge it. So, ignoring that passage calls into question the credibility of their reasoning and really undermines their objections to the alternative. Anyway, I hope that makes sense. I hope that's helpful and edifying to you guys who are listening. That's all for today. Thank you so much for being a part of this journey. This is a podcast where we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey, and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists to help you go deeper into the Bible, to inspire you to become like the man of Psalm 1.